today's content is adapted from material originally given as a lecture for the Theology of Peace and Justice course run by the Institute for Religion, Peace and Justice. The IRPJ hosts a fully online certificate that's accredited by St. Stephen's University in New Brunswick, Canada. They are open for applications now. Consider this a plug. The courses in Religion, Peace and Justice focus on the inner transformation of a peacemaker, contemplative peacemaking, theology of peace and justice, peace and violence in both the Old and New Testaments, practical non-violence and peace-building skills, and the factor of religion in peace and conflict. The material is taught by Dr. Andrew Klager and Brad Jerzak, along with a number of other friends of Tenth Theology, including Shane Claiborne, Pete Enns, Brian Zand, and future friends such as C.C. Jones-Davis, Cherith B. Nordling, Jonathan Martin, and many others. Their lineup is truly fantastic. Do check them out. The application deadline for the certificate program for this upcoming academic year is the 15th of August. More info can be found at irpj.org certificate and irpj.org graduate degrees. In any case, I will put all the contact information into the show notes. Thanks to the good folks at the IRPJ for letting us re-release this material. Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. I think there are five key ideas that can help us navigate through this territory of justice and nationalism and why nationalism is fundamentally off the table for followers of the way of Jesus or why nationalism is a fundamentally unjust position. It's an affection, it's natural, it's normal, and it's something that the followers of Jesus were asked to avoid, to eschew, to run away from, much like any of the, uh, much like it's normal and natural for an angry person to lash out and hit their enemy, Christians are asked not to do that. And in the very same way, it's very normal and and natural to bond together in what we might call nationalistic groups. And the early followers of Jesus saw this as a temptation to avoid. So this is why we're going to look at nationalism and how different Christians are able to think about it in terms of justice and how and why we might want to avoid nationalism beyond the trite vision of oh it's it can become idolatrous and I think what I'd like one of the headlines I'd like you to have is that nationalism is idolatrous from the start it's not that patriotism can become an idol it's that patriotism is an idol from the start and this is one of the things I want to talk about and this is one of the hopefully you're going to start to see where I'm coming from and you can tell I've already told elided two concepts patriotism and nationalism and there's a huge um, industry out there a mini industry in the in the academia and in popular discourse, to try and differentiate between nationalism and patriotism. And you will see this a lot. And I just don't have any time for that anymore. 
Uh, I also have contributed to some of that um, argument, which you can see, I'll, I'll give you the, to some of the stuff I've written on that. But ultimately, I think that the distinction between nationalism and patriotism, it just falls apart. They all fall apart. And the story is usually something like people who say, well, nationalism is when you take your patriotism too far. So nationalism is bad, but patriotism is good. So they try and identify good things about civic virtue or togetherness or loyalty to your country. Um, and they call that patriotism. They decide that's good and they call that patriotism. And then they look at groups they don't like very much. And they say, oh, well, that's nationalism, which I can understand the impulse. But I do think that it ultimately falls apart, partly because the words nationalism and patriotism are fuzzy. They are gray around the edges. They do not stick to the rules. Partly because it's a popular concept. Partly because this is populism and popularity we're talking about and the common sense and mob rule and all those things. And those don't stick to the rules. And so you will find, for example, in America, the, the, the hugely patriotic movement, lots of people who call themselves patriots and use the language of patriotism, and yet they match line for line, thought for thought, a classic textbook nationalism. Patriots in America are often white supremacists in all but name. Not always, but often they are. But they wouldn't use the language. And then to confuse things a bit more, you have people like Donald Trump and uh, some of his advisors, Steve Bannon, Stephen Miller, they will openly call themselves nationalists, but then they're preaching to a whole group of people who call themselves patriots. So where's the difference? On the other side, you'll find some groups like the Scottish National Party in Scotland calls themselves a nationalist party. And yet, if you look at their, their communication, you look at their platforms, you look at their, the ideology driving them, they actually look a lot more like what academics would call constitutional patriotism. They don't actually refer to ethno-nationalist versions of Scottishness. They refer to the state and uh, local communities and bounded by laws and machinery or the furniture of state. And so uh, some people say, well, patriotism is when you are allegiant to the state. Nationalism is when you're allegiant to the nation. And we'll talk about that in a bit. But the the two things cross over all the time. And I think that ultimately you just can't really have a distinction, which is why I talk about nationalism and patriotism in one breath. I mean the same thing. And I recognize there are different levels and degrees. I recognize not all patriots are Holocaust uh, Nazis. And I recognize not all nationalists are meaning exactly the same thing by that word. I do understand that. But I think from our point of view, what I'm trying to do and what I talk about in my work is whatever it is you want to call that deeply human tendency to group together with people who look like you and sound like you as much as possible. That's what I mean by nationalism or patriotism. The human tendency to group together with people who look like you and sound like you as much as possible. And then folded under that becomes all the 
the use of resources, the holding back of resources and preserving them only for people who look like me and sound like me as much as possible. The, uh, uh, the decisions about who to marry, who's a legitimate birth, who to kill legitimately. These are all questions that are decided by the impulse of grouping together with people who look and sound like me as much as possible. And sometimes you can call that nationalism. Sometimes you'll call it patriotism. Sometimes you call it tribalism. And uh, we often don't like to use the word tribal, especially uh, uh, white Europeans like me, because tribalism comes across as a patriarchal. It seems it 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 seems to be um, it's a problematic word because obviously indigenous groups, African groups, Latin American, uh, South American groups will be grouping together under tribal affiliations. And so we try not to use that word too much as a prerogative, uh, how, or pejorative, sorry. However, I will say that tribalism in the indigenous sense, in the global South sense, in the African sense, that also is a human tendency to group together with people who look like us and sound like us as much as possible. So I think is that human tendency which one finds across the globe in any age and stage of world's history you will find that impulse and that's the one i'm looking at and that's the one that i would like to provide a theological assessment of and so i'm going to use the word patriotism and nationalism in doing the other person or the other good uh, concept here we want to look at is justice and I think these are connected and I'm going to look at why I'm quite influenced by Augustine so let's see here I've got so in the city of God so Augustine you will have come across Augustine already this book was the occasion of this book was that Rome had been on the way to being Christianized it already been Christianized for a while but had a significant pagan faction minority still and at the time of augustine writing rome had been sacked by german barbarians pagan europeans had sacked rome and on the one hand you had the pagan romans saying this has all happened because of the christian influence the gods are punishing us on the other hand you also had then the christians saying what's going on how come we got sacked aren't we the pinnacle of history hasn't all of history led to us where's the triumphalist movement we thought the kingdom of god was being established in the roman empire how what's happened now so there was an uh, uh, this event of being sacked had led to disruption on all sides and augustine the great theologian sits down and writes the city of god which is partly his response and his history, history, theology, politics, and what is it really? But it's, it's his magisterial overview of Rome and what happens when humans group together into an empire and what's going on there. And one of his arguments in the city of God is that uh, Rome was doomed to fail from the start. And it doesn't have anything to do with whether it does or doesn't worship Jesus in name it has to do with justice because for augustine he, he uses the formulation of justice he says uh, justice is when everyone gets what is owed to them when everyone gets what is owed to them 
there is justice. And so you can have uh, a situation in which there will be groups of people who are living in your society who aren't getting what's owed to them, and that's a state of injustice. But you might also have groups of people who are getting more than is owed to them. And that is also a state of injustice. And for Augustine, he says, any injustice, any human group founded upon injustice is doomed to fail. And here, I think he's thinking along the lines of shalom, of uh, the, the Jewish view of peace, everything in its right place, everything in its rightful order, all the pieces lined up working together. Think of a Swiss clock, all the cogs whirring together is shalom. And that would be justice, where everyone is getting their right due. And the problem with Roman society for Augustine was he was very particularly looking at the divine, because he said in, in Roman society, we have lots and lots of human interactions and lots of people protecting their own rights and lots of groups jostling for position. But nowhere is God acknowledged. And if God is not acknowledged, then God is one of the actors in this society and God is not getting what is his due. So you have a fundamentally unjust society where God is not getting what God is due. Which would be worship. Or Jesus talks about the kingdom of God as, as the place where you say yes to God. The place where God reigns unopposed. If there is such a thing as a God, <laughs> then the right response to that God is worship. It's to lay down your life. It's to hand over the sovereignty of your life to the divine being. It's to do as the divine being does. It's to say, as he says, it's to act as God acts, right? That can, that can be the only right response. The only, if you have a divine being as part of your universe, then to not give that divine being worship, to not listen when that being speaks, to not act as that being wants you to act, is to not give everyone their and a fundamentally unjust foundation for your human society. So what does this do with nationalism? Now, Augustine is not specifically thinking about nationalism here. And in fact, one of the things we get from Augustine is the foundations of a justification for Christendom. And he begins to develop or lay the groundwork for what will flower into European Christendom hundreds of years later. And they will be explicitly using City of God in their formulations, in their justifications for empire building, for expanding the borders, for growing the Christian civilization and running things on Christian principles. They will be using things they got from the city of God. So I'm not using Augustine here so much to critique Christendom as I'm using his concept of justice to help us critique the Christendom that grew out of Augustine, whether he wanted it or not. Another person that we're going to look at is uh, Benedict Anderson, I think is going to be a useful defining term because I've talked a lot about nations. So Augustine wasn't concerned about nations so much as empires. And Benedict Anderson helps us. Benedict Anderson helps us to focus on the nation. What is it that we're talking about with nations? Could there be a connection between empires and nations? 
Uh, Benedict Anderson, I don't have his book in front of me, but uh, uh, Imagined Communities, published in 1991, a very key chapter is published in this book, Nationalism. Benedict Anderson is a famous sociologist, historian of nationalism. And the really helpful concept that Benedict Anderson gives us is the concept of the imagined community. And here's where I think Augustine's empire and Benedict Anderson's nation overlap. For Benedict Anderson, the best way to understand what a nation is, is to see it like a story that we all buy into. He gives us the language or the ideas and the concepts to talk about nationhood, not as a, not as a brute fact, not like a mountain or a river or a forest. A nation exists, but it doesn't exist like a nation, like a mountain exists or like a whale exists. Nations exist in similar ways that the Lord of the Rings exists or the Avengers exist. It's a story. It's a story and narrative that human beings tell and that groups of humans agree to. They agree with each other about the story of their nation. They buy into the story. And he will call this an imagined community, Benedict Anderson. Now, there's a lot of uh, uh, voices who are, who are, you know, taking Benedict to, to task here or to challenge him or to rethink some of his ideas. Of course, you're always going to find this. I do find it a really useful way of thinking about nations. If you are interested in pressing a bit further against Benedict Anderson and his definition of uh, the nation as an imagined community, you could look up Tom Millay. M-I-L-L-A-Y, look up his work. He's doing some work on Kierkegaard and nationhood. And I'm going to talk about Kierkegaard in a bit. And he, ben, uh, uh, Tom Millay wants to add some nuance to Benedict Anderson. But I find Anderson useful. I find this phrase, imagined communities useful. To think of a nation less as a, a force of nature and more like a story. A story that always changes a story that quite frankly is never really true, even if it has elements to it that are true. It's, a, it's a, a story that is often exaggerated. It chooses which elements, national, national stories, they choose what elements to emphasize and what elements to ignore. They choose that some voices get elevated and others get left to the wayside. The national story is a construction it's an unwitting construction. There's not one person um, often controlling the narrative, although sometimes in the history of nations, you will find some dominant voices do stick out. But it's a story, a narrative, a shared imagination that helps give the people who are part of that nation a sense of who they are, where they came from and where they're going. So a nation is an act of imagination. Justice is where one gets, everyone gets what is owed to them. I guess the connection here between empire and nation would be that all of these things are also acts of collective imagination. Even that, you know, if you think about the American empire or the British empire or the Roman empire, these are, these are decisions that people have made to agree about. There's no, there's no actual map 
there's only maps drawn with lines on them that mark it. That the, the earth itself doesn't have a line on it. The land itself doesn't have a big red splotch where the British Empire landed. It's, we constructed those things. We constructed the symbols and the tools to help us tell the story. And then everyone agrees, more or less, what it is that we've built and we act accordingly. And so I think that any human group, any story which gets bigger, any humans who gather together to tell a story about themselves, the story that they tell themselves about themselves, that is an imagined community. And sometimes it looks like an empire and sometimes it looks like a nation, but it always looks like people gathering together with others who look like them and sound like them as much as possible. And they use the stories of the imagined community to help them delineate who is like them and who is not like them as much as possible. The story is one of the things that's being told to help shore up sameness of identity and identify the outsider. And the closer you are to the heart of the narrative, the closer you are to the like-minded groups of people that you're moving with. That would be the logic of the national story. Now there's a whole lot of problems with this. And uh, in passing, I would like to point out that the national logic is that nationalism or patriotism promotes unity. That if you have lots of people speaking with one voice or agreeing about this one story, that they will then start to show unity and it fosters brotherhood and cohesion and all these good things. The reality is, is that there is not ever one main story, even within any nation. You ask a room of English people what it means to be English and you will get as many different definitions as you have people in the room. You look at the most patriotic nation in the world right now, America. Undoubtedly patriotic. More patriotic than any human group has ever been in all of history. How do you think it's working out for them when it comes to unity? Do you think patriotism is offering a united story which leads to everyone speaking with one voice? The logic of nationalism and patriotism it's part of the lie, I think. Part of the lie of the, the narrative is that it affords one story under which everyone can join up. The reality is it never functions that way. It always functions in terms of people arguing with each other, trying to justify their story as the real one and using their story as the way to exclude other people. So in, even in America, you've got Democrats and Republicans. Republicans will say Democrats are not patriotic. And they'll use the patriotism as a, as a way to bludgeon their opponents. It is not a source of unity. It's a source of endless division. The national stories are always endlessly breaking down into smaller and smaller groups, trying to identify who is a more authentic member of that nation or not, who shares the story better than others. But that's an aside. <laughs> that's one of the things that I think is a problem with the national. But there's some Christian, that's not a Christian critique, that's just a, a political or sociological critique of nationalism. There are distinctly and specifically Christian critiques. And for this, maybe we could start to turn to the work of Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher. Uh, Kierkegaard, let me see, do I have, 
I'm not sure if I've got his book here. I mean, I've got Philosophical Fragments. I have a lot of Kierkegaard books. In fact, the main one that we'd want is called Works of Love, which I can't seem to find it. Apologies, I can't find it on my, on my shelf. In Works of Love, Kierkegaard takes Christendom to task. The Christendom that came to us through Augustine and then Calvin and Luther, and before that, the Roman Catholic experiment of creating Christendom. Christendom in 1855, when Kierkegaard was active and uh, he, he died in 1855, but in the, in the mid 1800s, when Kierkegaard is active, he writes about Christendom this grand experiment, this grand narrative of constructing a Christian story in which everyone is born into and is a part of. And he looks at this and he thinks this is a lie. And it's a lie that has actually done away with Christianity. What has happened is people are born into a civilization. And in Kierkegaard's Denmark, they were born into the Danish Scandinavian Lutheran, officially Lutheran political construct of Christendom. And you would ask the Dane in the 1800s, are you a Christian? And the Dane would look at their skin and say, well, I'm white and I speak Danish. So of course I'm a Christian. I'm a member of a European civilization. I am the fruits of Christendom's empire. Of course I'm a Christian. And Soren Kierkegaard looks at all that and he thinks this is the opposite of being a follower of Jesus. The state of Christendom has brought people in to a position where they think becoming a Christian is as easy as being born. It's a member of your inherited ethnic tradition, which is the opposite of anything that Jesus said or did when he drew people out of their common inheritance, out of their ethnic tribes and groups out of their Roman or Jewish political affiliations and he brought them into his movement and called it the kingdom of God. And Soren Kierkegaard recognizes this but he goes deeper than just looking at uh, just throwing the New Testament at Christians. He's not just proof texting here and one of the things that Kierkegaard does is he looks at the nature of love and this is where his book Works of Love comes in. So one of the things I want to do when we, when we think about whether nationalism is just or not, or what's connection to justice, is to consider the exclusionary form of nationalism. Remember, I've talked about how nationalism is always collecting into smaller and smaller groups, trying to exclude people who don't fit that narrative in order to identify who is the authentic person for you, who is the right person who deserves your affection or your resources or your peace. So the connection to justice here is that if justice is where everyone gets what is owed to them, the nationalist story is about trying to give only some things to a small group of people and deliberately to exclude other people. Kierkegaard sees this not in terms of justice, he uses the language of love, but it's the same mechanism. And in works of love, he identifies, uh, while we all know there's lots of Greek words for love, 
there's you know brotherly love philo there's erotic love eros there's agape self unself-interested love there's storge which is the sort of um affections like puppies gathering together snuggling together that's storge there's lots of different types of love but Kierkegaard boils it down to two really he identifies them as eros and agape and he puts everything under each one of those categories and for him erotic or eros love is the love of the passions it's a love that is a like for like affiliation so people who share your passions. So he'll look at, for example, this is why he, he, he lumps friendship, philo love under actually eros. Not He doesn't mean sexual love, but he means passionate love because you bond with your friends because of your shared passions, because of like for like, the stronger and the more you have in common, the stronger your bond will be, right? The more that one is like you, the better the love, which is a passionate love. And uh, from a political point of view, he looks at patriotism, which is exactly this kind of love. The patriotic love, the nationalist love, is the love for the co-nationalist, the one who looks like you and sounds like you as much as possible. And patriotic love is very important. It's deeply human. It's very powerful and in fact it might even be arguably the most powerful force in the universe the the bonds that are formed between lovers the bonds that are formed between friends the bonds that are formed between compatriots or co-nationalists or people who share the same football team or baseball team like the the passionate love of a like-for-like relationship is very strong no doubt about it and erotic love, eros is very good at producing people who love things that love them back. Eros is very good at producing people with very strong senses of attachment to someone else. But part of the problem of eros as a foundation for a society is that an, a relationship of like for like ultimately just has you as the individual at, at the horizon. Because if you're only ever trying to bond with people who look like you and sound like you as much as possible, the ultimate end of that movement is you. And Kierkegaard, in fact, relates this eros, passionate love, to a form of masturbation. It's just self-love pretending to be love of other people it uses the language of connection and we're all in this together and we're filling stadiums with people crying with one voice or singing with one voice or chanting with one voice and it appears to be a huge mass of people gathering together when really it's a lot of people individually seeking self-love and that's no basis for a healthy society and Augustine would say that is an unjust society because it is excluding more people than it includes. It is finding and making the individual the sole arbiter 
of what is good and what is worthy of our love. And we'll only love things that make us feel good or that seem to feed our ego. It's a monstrous sort of love. And it's fundamentally unjust because it excludes so many people, including the divine. And Kierkegaard is more concerned actually with how many individual human beings it excludes more than he's even concerned about the divine at this moment. So he turns his attention to agape. And he says, uh, uh, patriotism or eros, erotic passionate love seems really good at producing mobs of people shouting with one voice. What it can't ever do is produce somebody who's going to love your neighbor. The love of neighbor is missing with eros because the neighbor is not defined as someone who looks like you and sounds like you. The neighbor is defined as the one who is next to you or the one whose needs you've become aware of. Welcome back to another debrief episode. We've just been listening to uh, talk about justice and nationalism and the micro. Oh, we're talking about the imagined communities. We're talking about the, the meaning of justice. And as we like to do, instead of just me talking all the time, I like to open up the space to some other people to feedback, bounce ideas around and have a good old conversation. Now, we have with us as normal, Chris Marchand. Chris, Chris is a priest, uh, he's a podcaster, he's a writer, he's a teacher, an educator, he lives in Illinois. Uh, and normally we have Sean McCoy with us. Now, Sean is still a friend to the podcast, he's still involved, but he is very busy these days and he needs to take a step back from recording. Which means that Chris and I were thinking, well, we could have a conversation together, but you know who was really fun to listen to? Natasha Beckles was really fun to listen to. And listeners to this podcast will know Natasha as an ordained minister in the Church of England who works in London. She was a former educator and she's a youth advocate and all sorts of interesting fun things. And Natasha was the guest on one of our episodes a couple weeks ago. So I won't introduce her in full right in this place. I will ask everyone to go and listen to that episode if they haven't yet. But Natasha is a friend. She uh, has been in classes that I have taught. She is a colleague. We've worked together on various projects. And, uh, and when Chris and I realized Natasha would be the perfect third person to have is this debrief conversation. So uh, Chris, Natasha, welcome to the 10th Theology Podcast once again. Hey, 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 hey. So good to be here. Yeah, nice to be here. Natasha, perhaps maybe we'll even start with you. Like, what, what were you thinking about when I gave that, that little talk about Augustine and justice and Benedict Anderson and Imagine Communities. What, what are some of the thoughts that you're having about all that? Well, all of that is my favorite subjects. I just oh, good. really see justice as um, it's part of a spiritual practice, really. It's what we're supposed to be doing alongside evangelism, alongside all of these other bits. But I loved um, thinking about the imagined community. It immediately took me back. Um, I, I kind of thought of the book of Joshua and how, you know, one of those arguments is that, you know, it didn't happen, but it is a story that really shapes the mind 
the reader. Um, really think it's a very kind of how how the kind of Israel was shaped. You know, it's 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 imagined self who was in, who was out, what what the laws of God look like in the kind of mythical understanding or interpretation of that. Right. So the book of Joshua as an act of the imagination being created. Gotcha. I hear okay. what what is being said in terms of you know. I, I totally get it as a person growing up in a society where you know patriotism, this nationalism is actually so violent and it, you know it just sprays across everybody's kind of mind and you see the trauma that is caused over the particularly over this last decade but in terms of uh, but I'm also sitting there thinking as how much as a kind of third culture person like my parents came from the Caribbean I'm here growing up in the UK like lots of us and how that different identity has and and imagined history has been such a protector of your kind of mind when you you're in such a at times violent emotionally or psychologically violent environment that it it's been a protector that um you could be proud of being Caribbean heritage or you know whatever it is that people have and you had and it gave you a nuance it gave you a kind of split screen or a critical awareness that wasn't afforded to other people in the sense they couldn't see or empathize with a different perspective it's not all that's not for everybody but so it, it had me thinking in that and that then led you in, me into thinking about affinity because you know when you talk in like you know edi kind of equalities diversity inclusion type stuff you know, affinity bias is right up there as the pretty normal human response that's there. And, you know, it's always my question, like, what are we going to do about these are the, the corners of the human heart that actually make us very human? And the best that we can do is manage it. But I know that I've benefited as a minoritized community in this country, having affinity groups that spaces where I could go and I didn't have to explain my experience, both as a woman, as a person of color, you, you know, somebody else that understood that. And, and so between all of that, then there's an aspect of this imagined community, this affinity group, for some reason, God created that in this Jewish community. I, I'm, I'm hearing my, my auntie Norma, who's passed on now, but she would always say, you know, the Jewish community didn't come from nowhere. They were this group of people that God gathered them together and gave them an identity and gave them, you know, a unity. You know, they weren't the strongest community. They weren't the greatest. They weren't the most, you know, intellectual. You know, there's all these, these civilizations, but God chose this community that didn't come from anywhere, as we say in, in the colloquialism and made them, gave them an identity. And, and, you know, you read those bits in the Bible, like you were scrapping around in the blood when I found you. And he gave them this kind of identity that framed them. And yes, they've used, that's been used in the wrong way and we all use it in the wrong way, but there are some possible redeeming factors to this affinity stuff, because it, when, when you are exiled, when you are in Babylon, you need something that, helps you protects you it's like a layer of fat that protects you from the worst excesses yeah right chris what were you what did you think about all this do you think there's anything 
good about natural affinity of people groups. I mean, the, the like for like grouping when people group with people who look like them and sound like them as much as possible. I mean, is that, is that a, a, a do you think that's a legitimate target for theological critique or do you think that it's something to be protected and preserved? I, I mean, I, I think you talking about the naturalness of it is really key because that can help us to unpack how just very naturally we, we devolve into our groups. In some ways, the, the smallest group to consider is the family or, or maybe like a family group system, like me and my, me and my mom and my dad and my brothers, or you know, I, I have two brothers and that can become a small little tribal unit as well, where I become self-protective of, of even the smallest unit. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was thinking about that, like mm-hmm. in terms of church communities, how I think maybe what I was pondering is you want your community to be protected. <laughs> You know, so, so I, I go to a small church, we're a church plant, and a certain type of person coming into our church community, a certain type of family, it can throw off the safety, it, you know, depending on their own emotional, spiritual health, you know, we're small enough that one family could significantly shift the health of the little church community. And so I was pondering that in terms of, oh, how would I make space how do we how do we create a place how, how can we as a community be healthy enough that and open enough that when the when the inevitable chaos comes through the door we're able to go okay welcome welcome to the community and and again we might have to put up some kind of parameters where we we uh we we can't just let them walk over us depending on who they are we have to we have to help them walk in health as well and that might take it might take a long time. So I, I was pondering that in terms of the, the, the tension between the necessity of tribes, the necessity of keeping safety within the group, and yet this call of Christ to always come outside of ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, could, I mean, going back to Natasha's point, like, could a thing be good and still not be the thing that followers of Christ are asked to do? Say more. <laughs> What do you mean? Like, I mean, just because you point out that uh, it's really important for me growing up to have, uh, you know, affinity groups with Afro-Caribbean people or something. Right? And that was really good and really healthy. And is there a space where we can say, yeah, that was good. And that is one of the good things that followers of Jesus are asked to hold lightly or to not promote. Is there space for that? Yeah, but to use Chris's example as well. So uh, not just not just in a kind of an ethnic racial way, but also maybe in a socioeconomic way. Like if it, if we say, yeah, it is actually true that groups work better when they band together with people of the same socioeconomic and educational background, that a group works better that way. And you're absolutely right. If you brought in a group that was of a different, of a wildly different socioeconomic and educational background, it would harm your group. And Jesus says, do it anyway. I think the trick is not necessarily to see it as harm, but know that it's going to be changed and just be thinking about what that is. And, and I, I think there's something, I love that story of Jesus. It doesn't sound like a lovable story, but Jesus going up to the fig tree and cursing it because it's not bearing that fruit. And that I think is a kind of image of how church should be. It should be bearing the fruits of the spirit and all of that. But if it's not, when God comes knocking, 
in the image of whoever comes through the door it that is the litmus test of a church really that when somebody comes who is um for whom you were made for whom you know church is made for the people you know like the sabbath is made for the people and and what happens is that people come up and their fears come you know in in front of them and keeping things the same and so it's the, what really is the fear is the fear of change because every person even if a person is of the same socioeconomic and ethnic or whatever the markers you want it they are going to change it you just might not notice it so much and 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 it's just that our sensitivity is that oh because they're so di it's obvious to me it's been it's obvious to me that they're different it's going to be a big change it's going to be a bad change and I, I just don't think that's the bit that we've got to like reshape. I mean, I do think that there seems to be something going on with the affinity bias or the affinity that that thing that's natural to humans that we want to bond with people who are as close to us as possible. And there does seem to be something in the New Testament that is reframing that. So it's it's not denying that affinity bonds are important. It's just saying affinity bonds are now between different groups of people that you wouldn't have expected them to be. Yeah, I would, I would, I would agree with that. And the other thing is that when you go to people who live in villages or live on these islands, I haven't. My mother would say, "I got too big for the, the island we were on. I wanted to get out." And and there is that part of you that you're affirmed by your affinity group. You know that you're you're almost like a. I feel like sometimes I'm a bit of a hurricane. I get a lot of strength from the community I've come from, but actually. I, my, you know, your dynamic and they're sending you out, they should be sending you out, you know, into the world in, in that way, in the same way that, you know, you know, Paul and Silas are sent off to, to go and bless other parts, that, 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 that is what it's meant to be as well. But I just feel like what happens is that the trauma that people go through in a community, you become more insular and you're protecting and, um, you know, there's a lot of thought that needs to be put, put into how we have these affinity groups. I, I wanted to say earlier that, you know, it can be a good thing, but when it is out of hand, it becomes a bad thing. So it's not that it's the worst thing. You need to have, if you're, if you're going to carry, there are parts of our culture, you know, God loves that diversity you know he he that i think will be in heaven that will will be presented there but it's going through that process and we carry that culture and i think there's there's something of this journey of christ culture interacting with this human culture and bringing out the best of that that culture and bringing and and bringing that as the crown that gets laid at his feet you know all of that kind of stuff but we when when we prioritize one culture over another so that all the other cultures are dying out in that particular way people are going to get defensive about it yeah when when one culture expands to fill the whole space and they push everyone else out you know that's empire right <laughs> effectively I'm, i mean i'm also thinking that like affinity groups might nurture and protect but it also it's affinity groups that lead to things like a prophet is not welcome in his hometown a hundred percent. And it is affinity <laughs> groups that lead to the, like, it was affinity groups that were the, 
were what killed Jesus as well, right? Like the, it was that kind of really fearful circling the wagons. We don't want anything to, to change what we've got. Um, and that was like, so that's also part of it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I, it's like your mother leaving, saying this island is too small for me. You know, it's kind <laughs> of like that group can be oppressive as well as fostering and nurturing and exactly exactly yeah. and just limiting and and that dynamic says that's stalky love for you though isn't it it's just it is yeah you know that's it's gonna it's gonna find ways it, it builds you up it shapes you but actually your job is to kick against it on some level I'm sure you you know well this is where I was going to talk about the imagined community side of it because it's not saying that imagined communities it doesn't mean that we think they're imaginary Right. Mm. We're not saying they're not real. We're just saying, what does their reality constitute? Like, what does constitutes their reality? Mm. Are they real in the way that stories are real? Or are they weird, real at the way that mountains and forests are real? Mm. And I think that, you know, e even yeah, any, any her heritage affinity group, when you dig down deep enough, it's basically there because people are telling stories that yeah. they agree about. Yeah. And that is true. That is real. It, that's what shapes us. But that's the difference. That's this is where I'm talking about the difference between na a nation and nationalism, right? Mm. Where the reality of your your story then becomes an ism. It becomes like a guide to life. It becomes a way to 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 choose who you're going to kill or who you're going to marry. And like it, it, it sort of takes that imagined story becomes a controlling narrative. And I guess yeah. that's the bit that I'm a little bit. I think Christians need to put the brake on that. But that's not saying all nations are bad. It just says nationalism is bad. But a lot of people don't tell the difference. They think as soon as you attack nationalism, you must also be attacking the very existence of, uh, <laughs> of different races and nationalities. Yeah. And I don't, I don't see those two as the same thing. But I, I think I agree with you. I, you know, there is this point where... It, it tips over to some sort of controlling. And as you said, as I said before, keeping things the same when all of these cultures, you were growing, they're all growing, they're all changing and um, having that freedom to do that. And, and you see it when people move, you know, I can remember, oh, who is it? I was reading, it's probably White Teeth or something like this, that where one child is sent, to back to India and the other child is is kept here in the UK and it, it's almost as if the the culture doubles down on itself in this environment because it's so under threat whereas back home the, the other twin brother is having this kind of completely different <laughs> experience because the confidence of the community is there that actually you can be who it is that you want to be and and I think that that that's telling as um what happens in this particular process. If the community is feeling under threat, then there is gonna be this kind of clamping down. But it's interesting that you, you'll be in a, you know, and we talk, you mentioned the words empire, you'll be in a, an environment where there is this empire and that's the group that are feeling under threat. The rest of us are underneath this going, um, it's a bit much. <laughs> Hello, why are you feeling friends? Why? <laughs> Well, every group will feel threatened at some time. Have you heard this? There's a famous story about when the Irish ruled the world. Have you ever heard this story? No, tell me that so story. So the Irish are famously, obviously, a, a, a race and a nationality that have been subjected by others quite a lot and, and oppressed by the English. And 
there was this interesting, uh, I think some sociologist was like, I wonder if oppressed groups, I wonder if that teaches them any empathy or not. Like, I wonder what happens when oppressed groups become in charge. And uh, they discovered that there was one little island somewhere where the Irish were a colonial power. And they had an island. And I don't remember where it was. You know, it might have been off the coast of Africa. It might have been in South America. I no, I think it's where. in the Caribbean. I'm trying. My mind is thinking, who is it? Who is Maybe it? It was I'll, in the Caribbean. It's in the, the Caribbean. Irish had an island. And guess what? They ruled it really badly. They were tyrants. They hadn't learned any empathy. And uh, there's this kind of idea that like one, one historical victim will be another historical oppressor. But isn't return. that what happens on an individual basis? The bullied, the bullied becomes <laughs> the yeah, bully. Exactly, exactly. And it's that kind of endless cycle of like, I had to put up with it, so you're damn well going to put up with it too. I, I think it goes into the discussion about what violence does. I was having this discussion with another relative of mine that violence, how it begets violence, that it shapes your psychology. And it that takes me back to, you know, Cain kills Abel, Abel and God marks him. And there's something about his psychology that every culture that he creates is a culture of death. Yeah. Yeah. The, the foundation of the city is also the foundation of murder. Mm. Yeah. Retributive violence. Yeah. And, and it's just that that from you are you are affected and I, I I think that when you see these pictures you know from the states or you know there's some lynching that's gone on and people are taking penny photos next to it you, there there is this kind of nobody I really believe that nobody can take your humanity from you it has to you have to give it up you give it up by it being involved in something that is as violent as that and it and it bequeaths onto your generations so you know you'll hear conversations about this this you know trauma or issue happened in history and they try to dehumanize you and I'm like that that that's that's I don't think that's exactly what happens what happens is that you shatter your own humanity and from that you, you create culture of death. And if you've got your kids in that photo, if they've been exposed to that, and we know that from domestic violence, from whatever, you, you, there, there's something about us that is formed in, in the presence of that stuff. And I think God's, the turn the cheek thing is as much about protecting your humanity as it is being the nice person to the other person. You, you, we're missing what, what, is, what is being done there. Well, this is where I mean the language of the beloved community. I don't know if you use that language very much, but which which is the the idea that we're going to be a community of people who absorb the violence. It stops with us. We're not mm. going to pass it on. Mm. You know, like it, the buck stops with us, kind of thing. And and that some of these actions that you've just described, the turn the other cheek, or I would say the the refusal for patriot to, to be sort of patriotic, mm. is in a way a kind of a saying like, actually, I know this is the way humanity is has built itself, but it's not working the very well and we're going to stop it here with us. Mm -hmm. You know, we're yeah. going to absorb it and stop it. We're not going to keep passing it on. Yeah. Chris, what were you, you, you had your hand up. You're going to, I feel like a teacher. Chris, <laughs> you in the back, you had your hand up. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I was captured by you bringing up the imagined community and, and Natasha, I think it's, I, I am fascinated by you brought up the images of the lynchings and uh, yeah, how they made mm -hmm. postcards out of them. And, and so, mm -hmm. I think what sticks out to me, Stephen, is the stories that we tell about ourselves. And that can, that there's okay. different spheres of that. There's the story that I tell about myself. There's a story that I tell about my family. 
the particular community I grew up in, and then all the way up to the nation state. And so here's the thing about your, your picture, uh, the, an actual picture of a lynching. I've told myself, I live in the North in America. I, I live above what's called the Mason-Dixon line. And so the story that I tell about myself is that we are not racists. We, we, we do not discriminate against people of color. And, yeah. and what's come to light right. though, and there's a map, you can look it up. Um, I think it maybe it's the uh, Southern Poverty Law. I'm getting the website wrong. It's, it's an organization. They have a map of all the lynchings uh -huh. that have ever occurred in America. And you go on that map and there's a lynching right there in my state. Lynchings, uh, mm -hmm. multiple. It's sobering, it's devastating. And you look and you go, wait, what now? And, and I even come to find out that there were, uh, there were curfew laws in my own city. I live in Peoria, Illinois. Curfew laws for black people in my city. And I, I'm saying all this to say, the story that I've told about myself is that we are not racist. And yeah. learning how to come, like, so here's what happens. Here, here's what's happening in America right now is for, for people, for white people, however we want to claim ourselves, to be told that white supremacy is the basis of the founding of our nation, it, it makes right. us lose our minds <laughs> because we're being told a story opposite of what we've, we've been telling about ourselves. No, 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 this is not who we are. Yeah, right. No, how, how could you say that? And, 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 and another parallel example is uh, the church world. Be told that perhaps our leaders are not as righteous as we were thought led them to believe that um, that misogyny is rampant, uh, that abuse and, and sexual scandals is rampant in the church community. That's not the story we've told about ourselves. And so then when, when it actually happens, we fight against it. No, that's not us. I, I yeah. think the beauty of... Because it's a threat to your... It's an existential threat to your identity. It's trauma. Yeah. It's, so trauma. it's trauma I think, to your identity. And, and I'm going to jump ahead a little bit to the next episode, is allowing others to tell their stories to allow their pain to exist, to be told, you know what? There were lynchings in your state, Chris. And what do you, how, can you just, how can you just let that be? And maybe listen to somebody else uh, and, and hear the pain that they've endured. So what, I, what I'm trying to tell is then in the midst of that, I start to tell a different story about myself as in my, my, my own person and my, my own community. Yeah, so I just wanted to offer that. I, I'm, yeah. I'm in that place myself and it's, it's a sad place, but I don't know. I'm, I'm listening. Natasha, do you do you remember where that, uh, I think you just wrote in the little chat here that you remember the island, the Caribbean island that it's we were Montserrat. talking about. Montserrat. Montserrat was, um, it, so it particularly celebrates St. Patrick's Day. So that's how I could like remember it. It was like connect, connect, connect. But yeah, um, lots of Irish Catholics who were persecuted in other parts of the Caribbean, mainly by the English, who were very Anglican or Baptist. Yeah. Um, they ended up on Montserrat and, you know, there's the forming of all of this behavior. Yes. <laughs> have you had, I'm going to uh, wind down this conversation in a few minutes, but as we come into land, have you had much experience trying to teach, like Chris just described, like having to learn a, a, a true side of a story that he hadn't told himself about himself. Have you had experience trying to teach that to other people? I know that you've done work with community education and young people and stuff like do you have experience with, or maybe in church? You do have it in, in, in the sense that there's a narrative, it, you know, our worlds are very psychological and 
you know, you meet young people who've told themselves a story or been told a story or been spoken over. And I do believe in like binding those things that have been spoken over yeah, people right. that shape and continue to shape their lives as long as they live inside the parameters of that word. And um, I think also this, the, these imagined stories that we have, um, like I said, it is trauma, but it's also a beautiful point is that point at which, you know, you can drill down and speak to God about you, you, the, the bit of us that, that doesn't want to repent, that doesn't want to be aware of our need for God or how big our cross is wants to avoid that and I and and it saddens me that we you know we as Christians who hopefully know a God who's that forgiving that we're holding on to this story which is not true rather than cleaving to this God who's open to receive that and and good to heal that and you know we have the ability to stand in the gap and be healing that through our um willingness to engage with a story that is painful is traumatic but it re requires courage to to engage and 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 acknowledge our participation in it but also be part of the you know concluding it I was I was chatting with some friends about why it is that all of this madness happens in the church and we are meant to be the re repenting people yeah we're supposed to know how to repent so the reason you see some of these heinous bits and bobs go on because if we're the first to repent we do that on behalf of the rest of all of humanity and if we're abdicating in that boy are we in some trouble <laughs> uh natasha i'm so glad that you joined us for this three-way conversation thank you for coming to here uh chris natasha please will you come back for the next second half of this uh justice and, and love and nationalism conversation i hope i hope i can invite you back to the tent for for the following conversation Definitely. Be here. Oh, good. Okay. See you soon, friends. Bye. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.